0: don't you just love road trips? Okay, maybe not as an adult when you have to be in charge, but do you remember how much you loved them as a kid and all the fun that you had on road trips? My dad took myself and my sisters and my brother on road trips almost every year, and we had one of those cool Brady Bunch paneled station wagons. So um, maybe you're not as old as I am, but you've seen the Brady Bunch, so you know what that paneled station wagon looks like. But it had a really interesting feature, and that is that it had a seat at the back that faced out the back window, which was really cool on a road trip, because you'd be doing this, and, and you'd be making faces at all the drivers coming behind you and having the truck drivers honk for you and eat ding-dogs to your heart's desire, no calories counted then. And uh, have you tried one of those lately? <laughs> Like, I don't know why we loved them so much. But at the time, it was like, that was it. Do we get to get a box of teen Dogs for the road trip? Okay, well, my dad took us to all these cool places because we always had a, a, a great destination in mind, like he would take us skiing at Mammoth, and we would be driving up the state of California or camping in the Sequoias, or the great destination of going to see relatives, cousins, aunts, uncles across the country in Nebraska or Kansas or Tennessee. Or we would drive to Lake Powell to go houseboating, it was all great. The destination was amazing and wonderful and we were so looking forward to it. my dad was an interesting guy because he made every stop along the way count as well. Um, We did a lot of silly things. Um, Sometimes we would do things like stop at the fireworks superstore. You know the one that was advertised 10 off ramps out and then nine and then eight. So that pretty soon you were just screaming, Dad, we have to stop there, right? Well, my dad was the kind of guy that'd say, okay, let's go to the fireworks superstore. Or we would hike up to see Native American cave paintings. Or we would just have to find that weird little natural waterfall that he used as a shower when he worked as a college student at a logging camp and we all had to use it too. Okay, we did all those kind of things. We even went to a place called Four Corners Monument. You might know this. There's one spot in the United States where four states come together. Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona. And he had the four of us kids all stand in a different state for a photo op. (laughs) So we did silly things like that. But on every road trip, there were also one or two over-the-top spectacular places that we were going to stop on our way. Things like the Grand Canyon, Mount Rushmore, Old Faithful, right, those big ones, those, those ones that were purposeful planned from the beginning, meaningful, intentional, that he wanted to make an impression on us as kids. And so he decided we would stop there. He um, was so into these stops and pre-planned them. And I have to say now, looking back, that those stops were actually the things that I remember most. Those purposeful, intentional stops that he made because he did not waste a stop. And God doesn't waste a stop either. Right now, he has the nation of Israel on a long, extended road trip. But he is about to pull the van over, because we had one of those too part of the time, pull the van over for a not to be missed excursus. The most important stop on the whole trip, actually, is where he's taking them. He's brought them out of captivity, they're two million people strong and they're traveling on their way to the promised land. They've stopped quite a few little places along the way. One was the Red Sea. That was pretty spectacular, but okay. Compared to this one, it, it, it really isn't. Uh, then there's the, all the places they stopped for food and water. They stopped to be protected from an enemy. And last time they stopped, it was to kind of tighten up their leadership structure with Moses' father-in-law and his advice. But now this is the, the, the major stop. On the road trip because he's pulling over at Mount Sinai and Mount Sinai is where it all started it's where Moses met God at the burning bush for the first time and he actually commissioned him to do all of this and he's going to pull him over here because he's got very important business to conduct with the people of God and you remember it, it's a spectacular stop. If you did your study, I mean, come on, thunder, lightning, ground shaking, fire, smoke. I mean, whew, it's all pretty amazing, pretty spectacular. But that wasn't even the main event. The main event was that God was going to show up and he was actually going to speak to them. That hasn't happened very often. Not too many people have actually heard the voice of God. The prophet has spoken to them, but very few people have actually heard his voice and had their bones in their ear move because the voice of God is speaking to them. But these people were unique. They got that opportunity. He was going to tell them something very important. Now, he had redeemed them, so he'd already got them out of Egypt, but he also promised them that he was going to give them a land. Well, that's what was plugged in the GPS. Great, check, we're on our way. He also promised he would make them a great nation. What in the world did that mean? And how were they going to do that? And what were they supposed to do? How, what were they supposed to do and not do? How were they supposed to relate to God? What did he expect of them? How were they supposed to relate to each other? They didn't know the first thing about being a nation. Those were all very good questions that God is going to answer at this stop on the trip. He's going to give them the most important moral code of all, throughout all of history and all people. This moral code has outlived every empire, and it is still the most precious law code on the planet. It's etched across our buildings, the way we run our society, and many, many others run it the same way, because God is about to tell them His expectations and His moral law code for all people, for all time. It's a code that we should be sitting on the edge of our seats to hear about. And in chapter 20 of Exodus, verse 1, is where he's going to begin to give them this. He says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall, make, you shall not make for yourself a carved image Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless, who takes his name in vain remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This most important law code, of course, we know as the Ten Commandments, and most people have broken it down into basically two big pieces. The first piece is the relationship that people have with their God and how they should treat God. And the second big piece is how they should treat each other. Of course, today we're only looking at the how we should interact with God part, the first part, which is actually four of the commandments. And the theme of this entire day is going to come in verses 2 and 3, which says, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, God comes first. God's people must always, point number one, love God first and foremost. Love God first and foremost. God is number one. He is our first love. He is our top priority. And this loving God first and foremost is going to be the umbrella over the whole day, okay? It's going to be the umbrella over number two, over number three, over number four, which are simply going to flush out loving God first and foremost in specific areas of our lives. This command to have no other gods before me comes on the heels of a very important verse. That says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Which explains why they're to love God first and foremost. Not because he's, not just because he's the great I am, the Lord God Almighty, but because He Himself bought them. He redeemed them, He purchased them, He owns them. They are His. That's why He should we should love Him first and most. God is the one who saved them, He's the one who because of the blood on the doorposts, spared them, and their firstborn was not killed along with Egypt. But he's also the God who convinced Pharaoh, the most powerful guy on the planet, to open the doors of Egypt and let them out. He owns them. They belong to him. This idea of loving God first and foremost isn't just found in your Old Testament. Of course, it's very familiar to you in the New Testament. The Pharisees asked Jesus, Hey, Jesus, what's the most important commandment of all? And Jesus, in Matthew 22:37, says this: "The most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind." God said He wants His people to love them first and most, and He also wants them means that we love Him with everything that we are, everything that we are. But remember, in this particular moment right now, the ground is shaking, right? Smoke. It's like you're sitting in front of a volcano. Now, I dare say, if all of us, like all of a sudden the stage is a volcano, and God said, love me first and most, you'd be going, yes, yes, right? I mean, the ground is shaking. There's smoke. There's fire. There's a voice booming out. You're going to be going, sign me up. Love God first. Got it. Check. But... It's going to be a little harder for us because we don't have any of that. There's no pyrotechnics show like at Universal Studios going on, forcing us to have this sense of fear and awe to love him first and most. So we're going to need a little help. And I think to get help, we either need to look forward or we need to look backward. There's two ways we could go. And for some of you, the forward's going to be better. For some of you, the backwards. The forewords, I'd like you to look at the book of Revelation. But I, I do want you to keep your finger in to because we're definitely coming back. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, it's going to give us a description of what Jesus looks like right now. And why the reason I say looking forward to help us love him first and most is because uh, this is the guy we're going to see when he comes down from heaven to take us back. So this is our future. This is the future Christ that we will be worshiping and serving and spending eternity with. Revelation 1, verse 12, says this. John is describing what Jesus looks like. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, by the way, lampstands are churches. In the midst of seven churches, Jesus is walking around. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man... He's clothed with a long robe. Imagine this. He's walking around, he's got a big long robe on. Okay? There's a golden sash across his chest. His hair, the hairs of his head, they're white like white wool, like snow, his hair is like that. His eyes are a flame of fire. His feet is like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice Is like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Yeah. Now, if you were to walk around like that on the planet and happen to walk up to Jesus and this is what he looked like, you also might go, yes, love God first and most, got it, check. If that's what Jesus looks like, um, yeah, I'm going to be motivated and convinced that he is the one that we should be focusing on. Okay? That's looking forward. Some of you might find it more helpful to look backwards. And looking backwards is looking at Jesus when he was a human being, living on the earth, paying for your sin. In your mind's eye, imagine that day when on that road they erected that cross and Jesus was stripped down. He was beaten and bloody, even unrecognizable to his disciples potentially because he was so messed up. He was made fun of. He was mocked. Every single breath he took was a struggle, because crucifixion was all about suffocating to death. And he was completely innocent. He was willingly sitting there to pay for your sin and my sin. When you think of what he did, and you look back at that day, you think, yeah, I need to love that God first and most. So whichever way you need to go, forward or backward, we need to remember this is God and this is the guy that we should be loving first and most in all of our lives. Now, living a life of undivided loyalty, of loving him first and most, is going to mean that we have to fight anything that gets in the way of that, Any rival that we have in our life, in our heart, in our schedule has to be dethroned. It reminds me of a story that I read this week about Michael Jordan. You know, Michael Jordan, the famous basketball player, right? The Bulls and all that stuff. Well, he showed up at his friend's house to pick him up for some dinner or some place they were going, and and he must have got there too early because the guy was still in his closet and he was, you know, getting dressed for the night. And Michael Jordan walks in, and he sees that throughout the guy's closet, there's a whole bunch of Nike stuff. Nike shoes, Nike shirt, Nike jacket, Nike track pants that he had been given by Michael Jordan himself. But he also noticed as he was looking around his closet that this man also had a bunch of Puma stuff. Puma stuff that he had gotten from other guys in the biz who were sponsored. And Michael Jordan proceeded to pick up this jacket, that pair of shoes. He took everything out of the guy's closet that was Puma, stripped it of every Puma item in the closet. He went and he plopped it in the living room, and then he walked into the kitchen and he got a big old butcher knife. And he proceeded to shred every single piece of Puma gear that that guy had. He picked it all up and he threw it in the trash, and then he told his friend, don't let me ever see anything but Nike in this place. You cannot ride the fence. Now, we might not be very happy if we were Michael Jordan's friend. But the bottom line is, there should be no rivals. There's one and only brand that we should be going after. There's one brand, that's Jesus' brand, that we should be spending all of our time, effort, energy on, and there should be no competition for him in our closet or in our lives. But before we leave this point, I have to remind you that loving God first and most, although it sounds really sweet and fun and pleasant, doesn't always end up being that way. Sometimes loving God first and most is like a worship party. We talked about that last time. It's awesome. Singing at the top of your lungs in your bathroom. Yeah, that's great. But sometimes loving God first and most means you're the first one to get at an event and you're the last one to leave. it's hard. Loving God first and most sometimes means sitting next to your sisters at women's retreat, praising the Lord together, laughing at the jokes and the games and learning from God's word. It's the sweetest. But sometimes loving God first and most is lonely because you're the only one on your block or your office, or your kid's baseball team who doesn't get invited to that event. Sometimes loving God first and most means that you are the one who's tagged to go in and share the life-giving message of the gospel to a lost soul who needs it. And there's not anything on the planet that's more exciting than that. But sometimes loving God first and most means laying in your bed on another sleepless night contemplating the justice of God and the judgment to come. Sometimes loving God first and most means you're walking through a meadow, and there's sunshine on your shoulders and there's butterflies and birds everywhere and it's so beautiful and you're just like so amazed at God's creation. At other times, loving God first and most means you are the one sitting at someone's hospital bed doing something that's anything but glamorous and fun. Sometimes loving God first and most is reading your Bible and feeling invincible. I can do anything because I've read my Bible, and this is true of me. But at other times, loving God first and most means grappling with your own temptations, your own failure, and the way that you have sinned and being burdened by it. Sometimes loving God first and most means that you get to do that thing that you are gifted to do. And like a a glove fits someone's hand, it's perfect. You couldn't be doing something more perfectly suited to you. But at other times, loving God first and most, most means that you're the one who is sent to speak the truth to someone, to correct them, and potentially to crush them into submission to obedience to Christ. Loving God first and most means that you might get to enjoy the love of a godly man and savor that. But loving him first and most also means forcing your heart into submission to what he decides even when you don't feel like it. And loving God first and most also means enjoying a sweet hour of prayer with the Lord. You think nothing could be better. Praying, talking to Jesus. But loving Him first and most also means going back to His door again and again and again when you feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling. You see, loving God first and most can be all of those things which means we have to endure to love Him first and most, even when we don't feel like it, even when there's no goodies that come along with it. We have to love Him first and most when we're walking through green pastures and by still waters, just like we do when He's told us, sit at this table with your enemies and walk through this valley of the shadow of death. We love God first and most, whether it's easy or whether it's hard. Now, we find the second command in verse 4 to 6. If you look at Exodus 20, we'll find it there. This one says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water of the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God says here we can't use anything to worship him. But frankly, I'm not really thinking that's super big temptation for you. If I was to check your Amazon history, I I don't think I'm going to see little statues that you're buying to pray to. Nor nor do I think that many of you are actually buying portraits of Jesus. I presume that's not in your history. The things are not super difficult. But... Verse 5 gives us more of a flavor of where we need to go with this in our application because there is something else that is harder for us. Verse 5 says this, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, because I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God. That's the key to this one. God should never be jealous, and usually it isn't of a thing. Most women, it's not a thing, it's a person. God should never be jealous of anyone in your life. Not anyone in your life. No relationship you have should ever cause God to be frustrated or angry or jealous or feel like he's in a competition. And the only way that that's not going to happen is if you love him more than anyone in your life. Which leads us to point two. You need to love God with your relationships. Love God with your relationships. To love God with your relationships means that you love him before everybody else you know. And God should never be able to be jealous of anyone in your life. And before you say, yeah, but isn't jealousy wrong? It's so selfish and mean and self-seeking. Well, Not necessarily, because really, jealousy is resenting people when we think they're taking away the affection and attention of someone we love, particularly when we're in an exclusive relationship with them. I'll say that again. Jealousy is really resenting people when we think they are taking away the affection or attention of someone we love, especially someone we're in an exclusive relationship with. Since God bought us and owns us and we're his, we're married to Jesus. He's our husband. He has every right to feel that if some person is honing in on that affection and attention that should belong only to him. Think of it this way. If your husband is out at a restaurant and you happen to see him and you see that he's got a coworker sitting on his lap and flirting with him, you would be full of righteous anger. You would be full of jealousy because his affection is being taken by someone else. It's the same here. God is jealous when someone else is taken up our time and affection that should belong only to him. It would be completely appropriate in that scenario. No person, not our husband, not our children, Not our parents, not our friends, not even us, ourselves should be able to make God jealous. Jesus said it in Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves, this is a tougher one, whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. No one can take God's top spot in our heart because we're in exclusive relationship with him. And godly people through history have got all riled up when others don't love God the way he should be loved. One of those people shows up a few years later in the book of Numbers when they're out in the desert here in the same general vicinity that they are today. He's a priest named Phineas. The people of God have been told by God not to bow down to statues and not to um, marry foreign women. And they blatantly disregarded that. They're continually being disobedient. God has even sent a plague to try to turn them around. And at one point, it didn't work, and at one point um, they are so shameless about their rebellion that an Israelite man takes a Midianite woman and in front of everybody in broad daylight he grabs this foreign woman and he brings her into his tent and everybody sees it to be his wife. And this just makes Phineas the priest, like blow his top, and he follows that couple into that tent, and he spears both of them because he's so upset that God is not being loved and worshiped and honored and obeyed like he should, and God commends him. In Numbers 25, God says this, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel because he was jealous with my jealousy among them. So that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. He stopped them from me punishing them because he was zealous for the love of God. That Israelite, rebellious Israelite man, loved himself and potentially loved that woman more than he loved the God of the universe. And Phinehas was there to remind them of the supreme place that God should take in their lives. Now, God sent a plague in Numbers 25, but he also reminds us throughout Scripture that he will judge those who don't love him. And in verse 5 here, it seems to say that he's going to make the kids pay for the parents' sin. Hmm, but that's not what that means. The reason why I know is there's lots of other Scriptures. I'm just going to give you a couple of them. Deuteronomy Twenty four sixteen says this. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Or in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians five ten says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether it's good or evil. Every one of us will stand before the Lord alone to be accountable for our sin. So what does this visiting the iniquity... Of the fathers on the children what does that mean then well just because kids don't get judged because of our sin does not mean that they are unaffected by it let me put it in the positive let's put it on the 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 good side first think of what happens when a parent does what we're talking about here they love god with all their heart soul mind and strength they love him first they love him most oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes, the children raised in that home end up loving God first and most. What about the flip side? Parents who don't love God, who reject God, and in this it's who hate God, well, normally, they end up having kids who hate, reject, and don't follow Him either. Obviously, it's not the case in every situation I myself have walking proof of that and so are many of you because God has given us the incredible privilege of being first generation Christians who had to break out of the mold of the rejection of our parents of the Lord Jesus Christ. But most of us know many, many, many Christians who grew up on the faith of their mothers and grandmothers and who we are confident now it lives in them as well as it did in Timothy. That's what I'm quoting there because the choices of the parents most definitely affect the choices of the children. Which means that we parents can make it easier for our kids to follow Christ, or we can make it harder. If we love God first and most, and we have a sweet, tender, strong relationship with Him, our kids are more likely to have that on the other side. On the other hand, if our relationship with God is cold, Wrote, duty bound, joyless, anxiety filled. A lot of our kids are going to end up coming out the other side depending on themselves, not the Almighty God. They're going to end up living like everybody else, worrying, strategizing, manipulating to get what they want instead of going to and trusting in the Almighty God. We want our love for Christ to be so contagious that our kids can't help but love God first and most like we do. And then verse 6 gives us such great news. It says that God shows steadfast love and devotion to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. He has a limitless supply of love for those who obey him and are faithful to him all their lives. Now, as I said earlier in this point, I I doubt, doubt that you really are struggling with worshiping a a statue. You don't got one in your closet somewhere, you're just itching to go get it out. Okay, but my guess, because I know women, is that the, the greatest thing we struggle with is the people in our lives and keeping them in proper perspective. Here's just one way that we could fail at that. How about you people pleasers out there? Sorry, I'm going to get to other people too, so it's all right. We all have a little bit of this, but some of you have a gargantuan amount of this in your heart. You just have to make people in your life happy. They have to like your posts. They have to appreciate you. They have to speak well of you. It is so important to you. You say yes to things just to make them happy. If you make it your goal to please people, truly, it will be utterly impossible for you to please the Lord at the same time. You can't do it. You're not loving him most in your relationships if you're failing in the people-pleasing arena. How about when we insist on our way with our husbands? We insist on it. We're going to have our way, and we end up treating them like they are our children instead of our husbands, when we are not that supportive helper and follower that God designed. We're not loving God first with our relationships and doing it the way He designed How about if you want that friend, you want that boyfriend, you want that husband so bad that you're willing to quench the Holy Spirit in your life, you're willing to crush any godly counsel you've gotten from anybody because you just have to have that person. That's more important than anything else and God will understand. You're not loving God first in your relationships. He's not number one. And here's maybe the hardest one for most of us. When you love, care, and dedicate yourself to serve your children, more than you love, care, and are dedicated to serving the Lord and his purposes in your life, you're not loving God with your relationships the way he wants you to here, having no God before him. All these other relationships are competing with God, and it has to stop. So what do we do? Well, we have relationships or tendencies in our hearts, even right now, maybe that we know aren't right. What are you going to do? You need to take all those relationships, and I'm going to say you need to throw them in the back seat of your car. I didn't say throw them out, although for some of you, you do need to throw them out. Most of us just need to throw them in the back seat. They're not going to drive you anymore. Okay? God's going to take the driver's seat. You're going to sit in the passenger seat, and everybody else is back there. Okay? And you need to remember passages like Revelation 3, 4, and 5. I know that sounds like it's three chapters. It's not. Revelation 3, 4, and 5, Jesus is speaking to a church full of real Christians when he says this, "'I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had for me at first.'" Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent or turn around, stop, and do the works you did at first. We need to return to the days when we first became a Christian, when we were hot, we were on fire for God. Those were the days when when God said to do something, you did it. There wasn't like, well, let me check my schedule. Well, I'm not sure if I can fit that in this week. Well, I'm too tired today. I'll do it tomorrow. There was none of that. God said, do it. You were on it, okay? You were called a Jesus freak, and you didn't even care. You were popping out of bed first thing in the morning to run to your Bible because you just could not get enough of the words of life. No snooze alarm. It was like, I can't wait. I'm getting up early. I'm waking up early because I want to know what God says. Sweet hour of prayer. Wow, that was, of course, that was all the time, praying, 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 praying. I get to talk to the God of the universe. Share the gospel? Yes, God. Who do you want me to do? How many today? You couldn't wait to share the gospel. Every time the church was open, you were here. It was like, well, I was there yesterday. I don't need to go. No, you were there. Rubbing shoulders with Christians, it's all you wanted to do. There was no like, we're not going by the donut table, kids. We got to get to the car. Got to go get off, do our other thing. No, you were here You were hanging out with Christians and rubbing shoulders with these women and men that you were learning from, and you were seeing their example. You couldn't wait to be with them. Every job, every ministry post, hey, someone needs to do tech. Hey, someone needs to clean up after breakfast. You were like, I'm on it. Those were the things you did at first when you were so in love with Jesus at the very beginning of your relationship with him. He says, get that back. Get that back. Put him in the driver's seat. You scoot over and everybody else get in the back. The thing I kept thinking of for this one is linger long. Like, how do we do this? We linger long. You linger long in prayer. You linger long with the Bible. You linger long in fellowship with Christians. You linger long here at the church. You linger long in worship. Linger long. You want to get it back? Linger long in all of those things. Don't go through the motions of your Christianity for one more minute. Tell God you're sorry, start again, and linger long. Well, the next commandment comes in verse seven. It's very straightforward. It says, You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It's very straightforward. The application is very obvious. Let's write the point here as number three. Love God with your words. Love God with your words. To love God with your words is going to be to add some and to delete some. And I have four suggestions for you here, A, B, C, and D. A, B, C, D, okay? A is the most obvious. A comes directly from the passage. There's no doubt that this is an application of using God's name in vain, Or not using it in vain, I should say, or not using it in a useless, worthless, good for nothing, throwaway way. Because that's what's in, in vain means. Obvious application from the passage. Anybody could read it and see this. And that's letter A don't say God's name carelessly. Don't say God's name carelessly. Because of course, do not use God's name in vain means you don't say things like, oh my God. I can't even say it. You don't use Jesus' name as a swear word. Of course. But again, like the little Buddha statues in your Amazon history, I'm assuming that for most of you this isn't a real temptation. Most of you aren't using God's name as a swear word or profanity or cursing with it. Okay. But what we're doing here is we're maintaining a level of reverence and honor for God and his name. So I'm going to ask you to do something that's going to be a little harder. Let's stretch here. And let's discipline ourselves to get rid of all the substitute words too. That means that we stop doing things like texting or typing or posting or saying, OMG. Means the same thing. Means the same thing to you and everybody else. We need to discipline ourselves to get rid of that. OMG is just not acceptable. It's not using God's name thoughtfully. How about, oh my gosh? I can't tell you how many Christians I hear say that. All you've done is substituted one word for what the world really would put in that. Or geez. And there's so many others. But we need to discipline ourselves. I know this is going to be hard for some, but we need to discipline ourselves to get rid of all those stand-in words too. Don't say God's name carelessly or irreverently. Don't throw it around like the non-Christians do. And this one here, this one's just my opinion, but um, I've even stopped saying, thank God. And the reason why is because everybody goes, thank God, like on TV shows or... I I find, for instance, the the non-Christians in my world... They say that word, they've hijacked that word, frankly, because they're with me. And they want to sound like we're akin somehow. Like, see, I'm like you. Um, They don't mean it. When they say thank God, they're not actually thanking him. They're throwing it out there. It's just my opinion. But I have changed my saying to thanks, God. And I actually do it. In that moment, I will take whatever it is, whether it's, you know, that person was healed from something we were praying for, or they got that opportunity to do ministry, or they weren't afraid, or God gave them that doctor's appointment that they really needed, and I say, thanks, God, and I make sure I say, thanks, God, yes, and I acknowledge, and it doesn't stop with what I said. It goes up to him as an acknowledgement and giving him credit. It's using his name appropriately and giving God the credit. I know that may be hard, but that is the moral command here. There is nothing more obvious from this piece of scripture than that. Now, the rest of these application ideas are related. They're related issues, but they're nowhere near as important as that first one. They're just helpful bits of advice if you got the first one down. So I got three more. Kind of spiritual, common sense, helpful suggestions on related issues. Letter B, another way to seek not to take God's name in vain would be to live up to the name Christian. Live up to the name Christian. Because a person's name represents who they are, if we say we're a Christian, we need to act like it. Christian means little Christ. If you're going around telling everybody in your neighborhood or your workplace or in your extended family that you are a little Christ, I would hope and expect that you would act like a little Christ. The world is watching, and they're expecting something from you saying that. You're laying down godly footprints for other people to follow him. So, frankly, I would ask you not to tell people you're a Christian if you're not going to live like it. Don't drop his name, If you're going to bring shame to that name, another suggestion for how to not use God's name in vain is letter C pray for what God wants you to have. Pray for what God wants you to have. Now, we're told throughout the New Testament, and we know it, that we're to pray in Jesus' name, right? That means that we're praying for stuff that we think is in accordance to what he would want and who he is. So praying in Jesus' name, it's like you're saying this. It's like you're saying, hey, God, your son Jesus wants me to ask you for this, so you should do it. Well, if you can with a clear conscience, pray that, for whatever it is you're asking for, go for it. You really think it's in keeping with God's plan for your life. It's not selfish or self-seeking. It's really what God would want. Great. And of course, I'm never going to tell you not to pray in Jesus' name. It's all over your Bible. Of course, you should be praying in Jesus' name. The thing is, a lot of stuff on our prayer list doesn't fit that. It's because it's something we want or would like, not because we really feel like this might be God's will. So. We have a choice to make. We either need to change our prayer list or need to change our heart. We need to change our prayer list if we just got some crazy Amazon wish list going there that would no way be God's plan for you, your life, or your children's life, would not be best for them. Um, I mean, them getting everything you want for them is really not best for them. It, It doesn't build their character, it doesn't make them seek the Lord. Um, anyway, we can change our prayer list or we can change our heart. And our heart would be then become way more deferential, way more, if the Lord wills, Lord, it'd be, I would just love if my friend would have this thing happen to them. And if you would will, I would just pray that you would give them that. But if not, that you would give them grace to endure. That's a different heart about this. So making sure that we're praying for what God would want us to have. We must be careful not to use God's name inappropriately. Because Exodus 20 verse 7 also is very clear. He says, if you use his name in a less than honorable way, or even an empty, useless, throwaway way, that you will not go unpunished. Which reminds me of Matthew 12, 36. Matthew 12, 36 is where it says that on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Someday God will hold us accountable for every word we've said. But the flip side of that, I want to end this on a positive note, is letter D because this one doesn't totally necessarily come straight as a thought from this passage, but I want to make sure we get the flip side If we're going to use our words to love God, then we need to make God look good with your words. Make God look good with your words. I mean, the first and foremost of that, obviously, is for you to actually praise Him, thank Him, give Him credit. Worship Him with your words. But it also includes things like encouraging others, instructing people urging them on when they're using their ministry gifts, helping them in fight sin and temptation, thanking them for the sacrifices they've made for the body of Christ. There are so many ways that we can fill our mouths with words that will love God. Love God with your words. Now, the last of the four commands is found in 8 to 11. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner that's in your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So Israel was commanded here to take off one day a week and do no regular work and seek the Lord. So let's talk about the Sabbath that Israel celebrated. I'd like you to turn ahead in your Bible, you're already in Exodus, to Exodus 31, and let's explore the Sabbath for a minute or two. Exodus 31, just few chapters from the time we're at right now, God says this, to Moses. He says, verse 13, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you or I make you different from everybody else. Skip to 16. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. Observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. Verse 17 is key. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now let's couple with that with some in the New Testament. You don't have to turn there unless you've got a device and you're fast. Couple in the New Testament. Let's explore this idea of Sabbath. Colossians 2 16 and 17. Paul is speaking to the church in Colossae, church full of Christians, and he says this in verse sixteen. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Here's another, Galatians 4, 9 and 10. This time, Paul is speaking to a whole group of churches in Galatia, and like, it's almost like a county or a state full of churches. In Galatians, he tells them this in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and the worthless and the elementary principles of this world whose slaves you want to be once more? I mean, why would you do that? And what were they doing? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Hmm. The Sabbath in these passages is called a few things. It's called the sign of the covenant. It's called weak and worthless and elementary. It's called a shadow of things to come before Christ. Now I want you to listen to just one more verse about this. Paul again, this one's Galatians 5.2. Galatians 5.2, he's going to talk about a different thing that was strictly commanded in the Old Testament, even in this week's daily Bible reading. Galatians 5.2, he says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Well, he might as well have just said, if you accept the Sabbath, if you accept the animal sacrifices, if you accept the dietary laws to make you right with God, Christ is of no advantage to you. Okay. What I'm trying to say after all of that is that we've been given 10 commandments, but only nine of them have actually been reaffirmed in some way, shape, or form in our New Testament. One has not. There are nine moral laws, but one is not. It is this one, the Sabbath. The Sabbath is treated in the New Testament like all the other ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, which don't matter anymore. It's treated like the animal sacrifices, the dietary laws, circumcision. Keeping the Sabbath was a sign of the covenant That God had with his people, Israel. And it was instituted looking ahead to the day when Jesus would pay for our sins, when he would sit down at the right hand of God because he had fulfilled all the moral law of God. He had done everything right every single time, but also all the ceremonial laws. He had been brought to the temple as an eight day old to be circumcised, he had kept the Sabbath, he had eaten the dietary foods. He had fulfilled all the ceremonial laws and all the moral laws. They were all fulfilled in Christ when he paid for our sin and he gave us the most important Sabbath rest there was. And Sabbath means rest. That's what it means. He gave us the most important Sabbath rest there is and that is that we no longer have to strive to be acceptable to him anymore because he paid for our sin and the veil was ripped in the temple in the moment of his death We have free access to him. We no longer have to keep the sacrifices and the ceremonies and the Sabbaths anymore. If you want to know more about the Sabbath, go to focalpoint.com. I have two messages that you can listen to. One is 06-02 and one is 13-29. Okay, we had all that little lesson, theological lesson. But if you're telling me, Carlen, that it's a shadow of things to come and it's not for us, then what are we supposed to do with the fourth commandment? If I was you, that's what I would be saying. What are we supposed to do with it? Okay. Well, God has definitely embedded a principle for us. He has laid down a pattern here that we are supposed to follow. What is the pattern? A pattern of work and rest. A pattern of work and rest is something that far surpasses going in strictly celebrating the Sabbath. You see, God worked six days, and then he took a day off. Not because he was tired, not because he needed one. He took that day for us. He took that day as a pattern for us, and he says it in Scripture that it is a pattern for us to follow. Whether we like it or not, whether we're tired or not, he tells us to follow this pattern. And it's really pretty cool because in your mind's eye, I'd like you to think of every calendar you have. The one in your kitchen, the one on your phone, the one on your laptop, maybe the one sitting on your desk. Every single one of them is exactly the same. They all have a seven-day work week. Seven days, seven days, seven days, seven day. Where did that come from? That came from God. There's no other reason to have a seven-day week except Him. And guess what? Every single non-Christian on the planet has an evidence of God in their life every day when they look at their calendar. Whether it's your banker or your gardener or the atheists who you talked with last week, every one of them is bound by a seven-day week because God created it that way and forced us all into this seven-day work week. Pretty cool. And it's a great reminder that God created everything. Every week they have a reminder, God created everything, not, it evolved over millions of years, but God created everything. Pretty cool. Now, why does God make us rest? Well, he created us, and he understands our physiology, not just our body, but our brain, and he knows that we work better if we have six days of work and one day of rest. Some of you are going, yeah, not me. I don't need that. Okay, well, He still knows we work better, even if you think you don't. Even if you think you can go farther, and some maybe can go a little farther. But for the most part, people function much better when their gas tank is not hovering on empty. Do you make the best decisions, even you type A's, when you haven't had a break? Do you make the best decisions in that moment? The ones you go, yes, that is exactly what I should have done. Let me go tell everybody to do that. No, you don't. He's given everybody the same gas tank, seven days. And everybody has to fill up sometime. Some burn through the gas faster than others, I get that, but we all still have to fill up. And most of us hover around seven days is about all we can take as human beings. So, he would like us to rest for, or excuse me, work for six and rest for one. If you rest for six and work for one, that's a whole different sermon. (laughs) So, what can you, as a follower of Christ, do with this fourth commandment? Well, we need to love God here too. So, we're going to love God with your calendar. Love God with your calendar. Love God with your calendar. And because we're talking the Sabbath, We're going to say that we're going to love God with our calendar by scheduling adequate breaks in our weeks and our months and our years. We need to begin scheduling adequate breaks. And it's interesting because even here in Exodus 20, livestock is listed as one of the things that is supposed to have that Sabbath day off. All of them are people, and livestock is stuck there right in the middle of the list female slaves, male slaves, livestock, sojourners. You're like, what? Okay, well, Exodus 23 makes it even more clear because in Exodus 23, verse 12, it says your ox and your donkey also get the day off. Like, what? Okay, now they're not heading to the temple. Okay, not of their own free will. (laughs) Not to worship the Lord, they're not. Well, okay, they don't want to go to the temple, the ox and the donkey, right? So they're going to stay away. But God still says that they're supposed to have a day of rest. He also says the land is supposed to have rest. He set it up so that the Israelites were supposed to work their land for six years and give the land one year off. Because they didn't do it, God gave them that in the captivity. You know, the captivity was 70 years long on purpose. Because God gave the land all the Sabbath years of rest in the 490 years previous that they had skipped. That's why this captivity is 70 years long. Rest is important for animals, for land, for people. Six on, one off. God says work is good. He commends people who work. Work was in the whole setup before sin ever entered the world. Adam worked in the garden. Okay, but he also wants us to schedule breaks. Jesus himself was hounded for working too much, but at the end of his life, he confidently said to the Lord in John 17:4, I've glorified you because I've accomplished all the work you gave me to do. And then at the same time, in places like Mark 6:31, he tells the disciples, Come away with me. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place, and we will rest a while. Frankly, some of us don't. Rest, because we don't want to, because we're type A's and we don't need it. Well, God commanded it, so sorry, but you need to kind of get with the program here. This is the way we honor God, is do what he asked us to with the body he gave us, okay? And it will make us better. But some of us don't take a rest because we're afraid. We're afraid if we're going that client or that paycheck. We're afraid that we just won't have enough if we take that day off. Stop being afraid. Trust the Lord. The wealth that you have and even the ability to work comes from him. You need a passage on this, you can look at it later, is Matthew, sorry, yes, Matthew 6, 13, sorry, 31, I'm trying to go fast and I switched it, 31 to 33, let me say it again, Matthew 6, 31 to 33, that's the one that says, why do you go, what are we going to eat, what are we going to wear, the Gentiles run after all those things, the Lord knows you need it, seek first the kingdom of God, he's going to supply for you, where do we start Where do we start to have this rest? You start by scheduling it in your calendar. Look at your Google Calendar, even today, and start giving yourselves rest. Chunks here and there, and I'm not talking sleep. If you don't sleep enough, that's a whole other thing too, and you got to start there first. This is conscious hours. You need to rest during conscious hours. You need to refresh. You need to recharge. You need to recreate. That's what recreation is. Recreate yourself so that you can work when you get back to work. So, Schedule some breaks where there's less pressure to work, less tasks to be done. Paint, knit, learn to play pickleball, read a book, have a friend over, do something that recharges you and recreates you, what's fun for you. Also, you need to schedule in vacations. The feasts on Israel's calendar four times a year were for them to get together, to eat, hang out, and have fun. Yes, worship the Lord too. But there was a lot of that time that was spent hanging out and having fun. That should be what's happening on your days off and your vacations. And don't forget the benefits of having that time to recharge. There's a story told, which you may have heard before, of two guys that are trying to clear trees in a a big field. And the first guy goes out there and he's chop, chop, chopping the trees. And they were going to get a certain amount Of money for each tree. Okay, so the first guy's out there, chop, 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 sweating, not taking breaks, working every hour, every hour, diligent. Then the second guy was out there, and he'd chop, chop, chop for a while, then he'd sit down and rest, and he'd chop, 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 then he'd sit down and rest. And at the end of the day, the first guy, of course, oh, I can hardly move, I'm so sore. And the second guy is laughing, he's joking around. And then they go to count the trees. Guess who cut more trees? Number two. And the first guy's like, what? You know, I, I was working so hard. I worked way harder than you, okay, frankly. How did you do it? Every time I looked over there, you were resting a lot. The second guy said, well, what you didn't notice is every time I sat down to rest, I was sharpening my axe. Because recharging yourself, your brain, and your body allows you to get back to work more effectively. As I contemplated this stop that Israel made on their long road trip. I thought back to the ones that I had taken as a child, and I remembered that the stops themselves are the things that I spent the most time, for instance, talking about with my college roommates and people through my life. Did you go see Mount Rushmore? Oh, that was so cool, right? They were the things that I talked about with my husband, that I talked about with my siblings, the things that I talked about even with my own children. And what I found is when the day came that I was the one who had some influence on what we might be doing in vacation, all of a sudden, I had become my dad. I'm the one who does the research and goes, okay, the hours are, it's open this many hours, and we just have to take this road, and we just have to plan this to make this happen. And I can tell you that my kids give me great grief, even today, of all the tourist things that mom planned for us. But I also get the joy of hearing them talk, even now to their wives, about things that they did on trips and vacations. And I just, I like to smile a little bit when I hear that. And, you know, a place called Cadillac Ranch got a really bad rap in our family because it was like the lamest place on the planet. But then, you know, they say imitation is the, how do we say it? Imitation is the highest form of flattery. And when my son took his friends there on a road trip across the United States, I was like, hey, not so lame anymore, is it? Well, I, uh, I know that my dad would be pleased and is pleased. Yesterday was his birthday and I told him this. I know that he's pleased that his legacy continues through me and that I was able to do that with my own children. But I can tell you that it's way, way more important that my heavenly Father is pleased with me. And when I live out the things in this moral code and when I pass them on to those who come behind me, he is so happy and so proud of me Because see, the most important thing about the legacy that we leave behind is not that someone sees how awesome Old Faithful is. The most important legacy I have is to help people understand how great God is and how important it is to love him first and foremost in all the areas of my life, in my relationships, in my words, in my calendar. And I want that for you too. Let's pray. Dear God, I do want to thank you very much for this rest stop we know how incredibly important it is we know how much it matters that we get this right and that we love you first and most so I pray for my sisters that they would make progress in every area if they've got things they need to get rid of in their life that they would if they have things they need to double down on in their life they would Pray that you'd give them the strength and the courage and the oomph to do it. And I also pray that you would give them the grace when they try and they don't always succeed the first time. Help us to endure in our loving you first and most and never give up just because it's hard or doesn't always feel good. Thank you, Lord, for the Ten Commandments. May they change our life. In Jesus' name, amen.